Hello and welcome to Slash Filmcast bonus episode. Uh, today it's just me, Devendra Hardwar, and I'll be chatting about Children of Men uh, for the movie's 10-year anniversary. So joining me today is Anthony Ha, senior writer from TechCrunch. Uh, thanks for having me. And Anthony, you're also a sci-fi writer, so I'd love to have your take on this film. And also Dwayne DeFreitas, my friend from college and a uh, co-host at the Drill Down podcast. Hey, Dwayne. Hey, what's going on? And Dwayne's also a sci-fi writer, so I'm actually I'm pretty outmatched here when it comes to people who know what they're talking about when it comes to <laughs> fiction and narrative and stuff, but I'll try, uh, because Children of Men is one of my favorite films ever. Probably my favorite. It's, it kind of switches between Children of Men and Old Boy, depending on the mood in the day or whatever, um, but it's mm-hmm. definitely my favorite Quran film. And yeah, the more I think about it, it's it's a film I've always loved. But it's particularly relevant today as we're approaching, uh, yeah, the presidency of Donald Trump, uh, the insanity of everything else happening around the world. Uh, there have been a lot of articles talking about how prescient this movie was. And, yeah, I just wanted to talk about that and the legacy of the film and, yeah, see if we can learn anything from it. And, yeah, maybe it'll teach us something moving forward, too. Uh, so first question for you guys, what is your relationship with this film? Do you remember when you first saw it? yes totally i was i was actually with a friend um who's actually uh he's a he's a pa and like kind of junior cinematographer for some of the hbo productions like uh boardwalk empire but we were in the pavilion cinema in brooklyn and i think we basically saw a bunch of movies that day Uh the dearly departed pavilion cinema it's dead it's i can walk to it now but it's they Mm. killed it at the end of october unfortunately soon to be replaced by a nighthawk yeah yeah, yeah, this was the one um, deep in uh, on, on on Prospect Park West, and we sat there and we saw the film, and you know that was the last thing that we saw all day. It was the only one that we caught all the way through because when you're movie jumping the way we had been, um, you kind of just watch bits and pieces. Uh-huh. And even though there was stuff to watch after that, we just had to leave because it was like <laughs> it we was, were we it was were too stunned. real. <laughs> the impact of this movie. Yeah, it was it was pretty stunning, um, and. There's just so, like once you finish watching it that first time, unless I guess you're some sort of like super genius, there's so much to continue to unpack in your mind mm-hmm. that I was really pleased to have someone there who's also, you know, focused on storytelling to be able to actually discuss it with. Um, I didn't I didn't know who to talk to. I felt like I had just experienced this thing and nobody knew about it. And Anthony, so how did you? Yeah, when did you do you remember seeing this film for the first time and how it impacted you? I do. I mean, actually, the first thing I remember is I just remember being incredibly excited about it before it came out, you know, since Quran had done um, Harry Potter and E2 Mama before then, two, mm-hmm. like, incredibly different films. So, like, what what yes. is, like, his next step going to be? And films um, telling and was, us that he was a pretty talented dude. Yeah, somebody to right. watch out for. But other than that, you couldn't predict anything. Mm-hmm. You were like, I... Who like this, could, this movie could be anything. And I remember watching the trailer a bunch, um, which, I mean, I think... You know, like in some ways that that the trailer was maybe a little bit off for the film because it yes. promised a much more uplifting film than maybe the one we Sigur got. There was Ross in the in the trailer. Like they really didn't know how to market this movie because the the trailer was more hopeful than the movie seemed. Right. Yeah. I will say, I mean, it certainly worked in my case that it made me excited to see it, and I went. Yes. And then I felt like I got like hit by a truck, and, and I remember like just you know I think it was a movie that I, it really took me a while to come around to because I sort of admired the talent of it, and I think particularly at the time just found, you know, the the style, the visual style, like, incredibly interesting. Um, but I think just, like, the bleakness of it, I think, 
hit like made it really difficult for me to really love it for a while. And mm-hmm. I think in recent years, as people you know continue to talk about it, and then just even revisiting it again for this podcast, I mean, I just realized how amazing it is. Yeah, it's that bleakness that really that really excited me when I saw it actually because. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. So um, you're talking to a guy who goes to Seattle every year for the holidays and is excited about the weather. Um, but um, right, right. I uh, I was I was watching it and I found that that sort of drabness, that sort of low color palette, it it allowed me to focus on characters more, and it reminded me that um, that this is kind of the world of living in. It's kind of unclear. Why? I mean, you're in England, so you know it's going to be foggy. At the same time, you've got this future setting, and we know that things like air pollution are going to get worse, and yada, yada, yada. So it just seemed to kind of fit with the setting they were making, that things aren't sunny and happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and even through the movie, through the end of the movie, when they're just sitting in this fog, and all they can see, the only thing they see in the sky are like F-35s going by and then bombing something, and the explosion from that, right? <laughs> so it's it's like they're they're mired down by this this heaviness and that heaviness is even in the air it's in everything around them and that's kind of how i feel sometimes when i'm when i'm in a situation that i think is is hard and let's face it their entire life situation their setting was was pretty hard mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. bleak you know so yeah i, I think there was something way, to that but yeah i and as you guys are talking about this i've been thinking about it i actually don't remember when i first saw this movie uh, i was definitely excited for it and I was still working uh, in IT at Amherst College at the time, so I saw it in our little Cinemark there, uh, where we had to see all the movies, so we all got pretty familiar with that place. So, strangely, like I can't remember my first experience watching this movie, even though I know I, you know, I was very excited for it. I saw the trailers as well. Coron was somebody I had my eye on as well. And I was just really into watching you know crazy new styles of film at that point. That was before... We did the Slash Film cast. Uh, this movie came out in, what, 2006, right? And we started podcasting about movies in 2008, late 2007. Um, so, yeah, it was a couple years until we got, were even doing something like that. But strangely, the movie felt like... I guess it hit me in a way that it felt like it was always with me. It's sort of like when I read 1984 for the first time. It was stunning and revelatory, but then it also felt like it was always something that I kind of felt in tune with even before I had read it. So my relationship with this film has been pretty close from the start. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's like a little bit of contribution. Oh, sorry. sorry go ahead. I was going to, I was just going to ask if this is a film that you actually rewatch pretty frequently. Oh yes. Since then, like, and I think that's part of the thing too, is I've seen it so many times. Like I watch it probably several times a year. Um, it's a movie that's always clicked with me a lot. And you, you guys are talking about how bleak it is. Uh, I it is bleak, but it's not like relentlessly bleak, right? It's not like Requiem for a Dream or something, or even The Road, which is another like big. Um, <laughs> the Road is the bleakest the film road I've right, ever those seen. Those are our bars. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Sure. If Talk The about... Road is your film for bleak, is your bar for bleak? Then like, yeah, nothing. That's this like, is clearly that's like, like a, the end of like the Wizard of Oz. Meter. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I like I like my sci-fi a little bleak, uh, but with a tinge of hope. You got to have that hope in there. The hope can't be everything, but it has to be, you know, it has to be an important part of the story. And I think um, even back then, you know, we were dealing with, uh, we were still dealing with the war in Iraq. Uh, We were dealing with refugee issues all over the place. Uh, We knew by that point that we'll have an environmental crisis coming. 
And everything this movie talked about really resonated then. What's scary, though, is that flash forward 10 years, um, it almost seems like we've reached the future of this movie uh, twice as fast, right? This movie takes place 10 years from now. uh, But so much of the imagery and so much of the things we're seeing and the propaganda in the film, and uh, even the... uh, Yeah, we're not seeing refugee fences and encampments in the UK yet, uh, but it doesn't seem like we're too far from that. I've seen a lot of, like, um, people have been tweeting a lot of images uh, of, like, the people, the vans who are picking up refugees or hunting down illegal refugees over there, and just the idea that that's so similar is kind of scary. So, I, is that something you guys have noticed as well? Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, the the thing about seeing it in 2006 was, again, I was seeing with my buddy Evan, and he had actually gone down in 2005 to Louisiana after Katrina. Yep. Um, and Katrina was still fresh in, I think, most of the nation's mind in 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happened in August, and this movie came out in, in August 2005, and this came out in 2006. And that kind of, you know, the refugee situation, it had happened in America already, right? There was that whole thing that happened in the stadium in, in, in um in Louisiana and people had to leave the stadium. It was a, it was a nightmare hell scenario. And you had the refugees going over to Texas and into Mississippi and all these places. Kanye West was talking about how the world doesn't care about, you know, people of color. And when you see this film, what really got me was that the, the refugee issue wasn't one of like these people from this area are refugees. It's the refugees look like everybody, right? There were, you know, uh, people of European descent, Middle Eastern descent, South Asian descent, Asian descent, African descent, everybody was in these boxes. And so it's almost like what made you uh, an okay person, a person who would walk around and be normal and all the rest of it. Because um, the, the regular citizens of the UK, they, all, they also come from all colors. So there was this kind of arbitrary line about who got affected and who didn't. Um, and that to me was like the most frightening part. Like what side of this law are you on where you can be put in a metal cage and and just be background noise for somebody living their life versus you know being a a bowler hat and a nice coat and walking around and and living your life like what that that kind of confusion was it was a real big thing and today you know when we think about what's going on when it comes to brexit and so on um people are anti-immigration uh and, and stuff like that there seems to be a slightly more defined let's call it color palette between um, who wants to separate themselves from whom. Right. Um, and, and that overt kind of focus. You're uh, saying the film was even too hopeful in its perception, in its portrayal of bigotry. <laughs> like, the real world is actually worse because it is, it is a lot of, like, the, the white Brits who don't want that. Kind of. Well, I think with the real world, right now you can see things coming because there's a certain type of person that wants to kind of uh, build certain exclusionary... Um, practices around around law and, and, and legitimacy. In that film, what was scary was that there's no way to tell who is, you know, um, locked out or or allowed in, and that arbitrariness made it so that at the end, you know, Theo, the Clive Owen character, he's readily admitted to this camp, and no one's like, hey, why are you here? Well, what's wrong? What you know? What's what's keeping you here? It wasn't like, oh, he must, he could be, he should be a British person, whatever. They're just like, oh, he's another guy because he doesn't have his papers, so to speak. He's an, he's another uh, Fuji, and that that's a little frightening because <laughs> if you think about Britain as a nation of like the same people in the same place with the same language, um, 
clearly he he's part of that that history on some level, but not. He's been expelled, so to speak. He's been excommunicated from his own people, um, and that's that's a little strange and frightening because there's just no way to pin down what makes you a Fuji or not. You know, so that was sure. weird. And that's actually yeah, that's something we're still seeing today. Uh, I think in every country, right here in the U.S. too, like the the conversation around the people who are here illegally, even if they've been here for many years or decades, and how does right. that really separate them from you know a natural born citizen? These are all things we're still dealing with. Um, Anthony, you were gonna you were trying to bring up an issue too, I think. Oh no, I, I mean just to I agree though that it definitely it's interesting because I think I hadn't rewatched the film in, in a few years and. I'd kind of almost forgotten that that was <laughs> such a big element of the film. Yeah. But, and then you watch it now and there is this element of like, wow, if you made this film now, it almost feel too on the nose. And like, you would say, oh, well, this is, you know, such a film of the moment that it's not going to, you know, resonate at all, you know, mm-hmm. 10 years from now. But clearly this is something that, that continues to be important. I think the other thing that I, that really struck me was how much, is is that it contextualize that it that it's, it may seem weird like if you talk about it in an abstract way of like oh like it's a movie about you know this high concept about infertility but then there's also this you know um, refugee situation going on at the same time but it does a really good job of tying them together mm-hmm. and you know showing how you know other political factors you know that, that that when when we have situations like this they don't occur in a vacuum but they're you know often being sort of exacerbated and by other things. For sure. Yes, yes, I totally agree. It's uh, I think what's beautiful about this movie is how, I guess, everything comes together, right? This isn't a very long movie, but it paints its ideas kind of broadly, in a way, and it wraps it all together just really, really beautifully. What I love about this film is that it doesn't even waste much time with setup, right? And with context, because there's so much going on in the background of this world. Um, to really understand Children of Men, you kind of have to watch it a few times and not just pay attention to the story in the foreground, but what's also happening in the background. Because that's the only way you're going to get some of the uh, backstory of what's happening here. I love the scene where um, Theo's caught uh, first by the uh, by the fishes, and he's in the room that's just plastered with newspapers, which is just a brilliant way of conveying, I think, the history of what's going on there, right? Because you see, you see the climate issues... Um, you see issues in uh, America dealing with nuclear fallout. I just remember some of the uh, some of the headlines there. The movie is yeah. There's a nuclear. There's a mushroom cloud, and they've got this um yeah. this news um, thing going on. Like you know, America, New York has a yeah. mushroom cloud over it. You know, Berlin, Paris. They're showing all these places. It's like a five like second kind of, clip. Like while they're right. yeah, while they're introducing a news thing, and only Britain stands alone as like the yeah the Britain one, stands alone. Yeah, the one company. And what, you're, you're the one country that can survive all this. But what I love about that clip too, by the way, is that it's really really short. You don't the mushroom cloud is there on the screen for less than a second. Uh, but you know, uh, Americans who had just experienced nine eleven or something—that's like an even more intense image. You don't need more than half a second to really convey the impact of that. Yeah, and that's also interesting because, um, just politically speaking, mm-hmm. one of the things that I think Dick Cheney said on on like Sunday news shows was, "We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud over over you know someplace in America." Um, so that that resonates right there. On top of that, the way Quran uses. The news, in addition to the background, the cinematography, um, to tell us a story without the exposition is pretty powerful. Cause, and not, a, not in like it, a really forced way, because we've seen that a lot, too, in sci-fi movies, where it's just newscasters right. 
Uh, it's it's people in actual Breaking real everything down. Issue. Yeah, yeah. They'll use real newscasters, mm-hmm. or they'll have some person who's just unaware of what's going on. And they're, I mean, this is a typical story plot mechanism. The new guy, like Luke, has to be taught everything, and right. so through Luke, we get taught everything that in the Star Wars universe. In this case, we don't really have that. We we have a whole bunch of kind of drab, um, almost faceless people staring at TV, staring at it with them, or they're on a bus or whatever. But it's really like the story of the universe is being told through things like news feed. Like, it's very mundane, I guess is the way I would say it. In addition to the bleakness we've talked about, there's a mundane nature of telling you about the the world that we're in. And because it's so, um, you know, blasé, like, oh, okay, whatever, um, you're, it, it sneaks up on you. It's insidious that this place is so bleak. And it's only kind of at that moment where the outside world of the refugees merges with the foreground uh-huh. of the, um, the the plot line with our characters. And that is when he decides that he's going to take this trip and go into the refugee camp. It's only at that moment that we're really confronted with like the brutal um, treatment of these people mm-hmm. and, and how inhumane this part of Britain is. And especially interesting that it's Britain, considering that we think of Britain as one of the most civilized places in the world, that they could be treating people like this is kind of anathema to a 21st century human, uh, you know, person For watching sure. a film. And that's actually, yeah, so that I, was weird. I love the, uh, the sequence where we, you know, Leo, uh, Theo goes to meet his, uh, his cousin in the really affluent rich part of the city. And, uh, the, the like jarring switch, right? It's, uh, uh, what's the song? Um, Throne of the Crimson King, I think, is playing. Is like he's entering there, and just like seeing that world, right? The people who it—it's a clean environment. It's so lush and green. There are zebras in the park, guys. And I think there's a camel yeah. too. Like it's, it's like um, Zamunda in a uh, in Coming to America, right? <laughs> for sure. Like it's the land of plenty, uh, walled away from like you know everybody else. Uh, that whole sequence, I love that we go from the real world to the heightened, like really affluent world, uh, where you know works of art are just being kept. I love the one line um, where Theo's talking to his cousin about something like Madrid, right? So, uh, it would have been a real loss for art, and Theo's like, "Yeah, not to mention people, if uh, right, yeah, if and we had lost this it, thing." What's really funny about that is that you see that like the Michelangelo, yeah, you know, the leg is broken, but they've saved it, which gives it a bit more mm-hmm. um, realness. But what's really cool is that you know when you look at Michelangelo's David and you look at it in its place now, it's in this little cupola. It's surrounded by these columns and this beautiful marble and this art with guard dogs there, too. That's right, the imagery. He, yeah, he's walking in right. like the art is not for everybody. It's for the people right. who can get in. But I guess what I was also going to say is that in this staging of Michelangelo's um, David, you see it in a stark space. There's kind of like these um, cubicle Mm -hmm. walls surrounding it. It's got like a a window behind it. The sky is just white. There's no context to this art. When he's got the Picasso behind him, there's no context to that art. And that's so weird because as much as the art is beautiful, it can't really be appreciated outside of context. And yet – there it is. And on top of all that, right. you know, you've got this kid sitting down there next to them when they're eating. They're presumably his nephew. And he's got the same screen time fascination that we worry about <laughs> with children today. That was 10 years ago, a year before the iPhone had come out. Yeah. Right. A year he's before so the fun. iPhone, definitely years before we realized that would have been a phenomenon, too, like that everybody yes. would be into it. Uh, I That scene always kind of it, it seemed like a weird commentary in gaming at that point. And then flash forward ten years, it's like my god! Like they, he's even doing like screen gesture stuff on that little gaming system. Exactly. Yeah. And he's completely. He's a, by that way. 
What's that? Say again. The, the, the actor playing the kid was uh, Ed Westwick, Chuck Bass from Gossip Girl, which what? I just think is hysterical. Yeah, that's him. <laughs> Not everybody watches so, Gossip Girl, Anthony, but that is a wonderful uh, reference. <laughs> that is that is here to help. Let's. For me, it was just weird because of the idea that he's surrounded by all this incredible art. It has no context. And so to him, it means nothing, which is why he's looking at a game instead of this Picasso behind him. So Mm -hmm. that's that's all I wanted to say about that. Specifically that it's Guernica and like, you know, one of the most like horrifying, like moving political pieces of art. And it just sits there while people, you know, (laughs) eat their lunch. Eat a really, really fancy lunch, too. Right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It was uh, the kind of meal that he couldn't even think about affording. Even though he's not a man who's like hard up right now or anything, um, he's clearly not in a financial place he wants to be, which is why he gets the why he takes the meeting with Julia to begin with, right? Because the idea of five thousand dollars or whatever, five thousand pounds or whatever he'd get for for dealing with um with uh, this refugee situation. So it was it, it was it was a striking. It, it, I think it's exactly what you said. The idea that we're not having a lot of exposition or discussion, but through the way this stuff is staged, we're seeing that the world is really out of balance. It's really out of whack, but it's out of whack in these subtle ways that could have prepped up on you. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting, too, is like we see it as out of balance. And what's funny to me is like just watching Theo just like live with it. Right. He's walking by the, you know, the refugees chained up uh, and really horrific things happening to these people. Right. Do you just. It's. I think it's a really interesting thought to have right now, like as we're approaching a really, really difficult and contentious political climate for the next few years. Um, I wonder how easy it is for people to just kind of go on with their lives. Yeah, it'll get a little harder. Um, you know, things will get a little more inconvenient. But if you're middle class in a way, right, you can ignore a lot of those things and just live right. on. And the, the entire story of this movie really uh is about his story of him like being kind of keep calm and carry on well not even keeping calm and carry on but it's also like looking up and giving a damn and doing something uh right. i love uh in the there's a great vulture retrospective that just went up which kind of uh prompted uh, this recording as well by abraham reisman and uh, he got some great stuff from quran and a bunch of the folks too and what's interesting is that quran isn't um like, he doesn't seem too excited about the fact that he predicted so much stuff uh, because this movie comes out of a lot of research and just him looking at trends and him looking at things uh, that were actually happening at the time. You know, we could have seen that a lot of this stuff was coming. And uh, there's one great quote from him that's uh, he says, what's really relevant now is to stop being complacent. And yeah, that's that's a wonderful takeaway from this film. I think probably more important than ever. And I, I mean, in a weird way, too, it, all, it reminds me of uh, it's very Rogue One in that way, too, right? We're going to see a lot of stories of rebels and people trying to do something about it. In a weird way, that's something uh, young adult fiction has been doing for the past couple of years, right? It's like you couldn't – every year we'd have several dystopian stories coming up. So I almost feel like in a way uh, pop culture was preparing – for some sort of weird <laughs> ideological battle, right? That's Hunger Games. The entire point, uh, yeah, of this movie, I think, the greater thematic point is very much what Hunger Games is doing. Because that was also a series where, yeah, it's a people fighting the oppressive government, but even the rebels couldn't be trusted. And I always found that an interesting aspect of that story, too. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I think... I was going to say just that I think, I mean, one of the things that makes Children Men a bit different from some of these other films, though, is that I think it's possible for people of a lot of different stripes to maybe Mm -hmm. like I, you know, like we've definitely like 
you know, seen like conservatives talk about themselves as if they're the rebellion. And we could have an argument <laughs> on whether that's really supported by the text. But I mean, I think that like that sometimes, you know, that, that science fiction is political allegory. Sometimes it can be in these very broad way, like Rogue One. Um, or I mean, the thing about like Children of Men is that, yes, there's sort of these broader ideas, but it also is like has like very specific politics. And so I think, you know, unlike some of these other films, I don't think, you know, where's the po- it's politics on its sleeves, I think a little bit more clearly than something like Hunger Games, which I think is political, but mm-hmm. also can be read in a number of different ways. That's true. Like if you're very broad, then yeah, you could you could see yourself as the one being oppressed pretty easily. Right. And when you look at this also, what's interesting that differentiates it from Hunger Games, Maze Runner, you know, um, Divergent, all this stuff is that those scenarios happen in a time where we're either very old people or we're long dead. Whereas this this film, I think um, uh, Alfonso, uh, you know, his his writer Sexton says that this was an inflection point. The future wasn't ahead of us. We were living through it. And when I look at the film, what's interesting is that, you know, again, it's kind of like you, you see things are off from our perspective, but they're not off from these people's perspective because things have been turning to this kind of off and askew manner in a slow enough way so that where it is at the point uh, that we're seeing the film, everyone's adjusted, right, to the point where even when we're we're looking at, um you know, Jasper and Theo talking, Jasper's like, hey, what do you think it is with the people not being able to get pregnant? He's like... Well, it doesn't really matter anymore because it's such a, a regular thing now. It's such a, a piece of it that he's not even worried about where it comes from. It's just a fact of life now. And what's really weird about that is how he's so comfortable with the fact that the world is effectively dying. Right, right. right. And so we're seeing this world where it's it's the slow death as opposed to like in the in the Hunger Games, there was some war or some post-apocalyptic event or some yes. some kind of huge yeah. inflection that happened, whether it's aliens invading or whatever. There's like a moment where you can say things changed. And what's the craziest thing about Children of Men is that we're living through that change and it's going to take decades, but there's almost nothing you can do about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. politically, there's probably something you can do about it, but no one's willing to do anything about it. And yeah. so people have to suffer for decades to get through this change, which ends up in the death of everything, which is <laughs> more depressing, I think, than the Hunger Games and the other things. <laughs> but for I do think sure. you're right in terms of in terms of giving young younger audiences the idea that, like, not everything is perfect. If we don't stay vigilant, things can come out in a terrible way. Yeah, I do yeah. think that that's helpful. I did, In a weird way, it does seem like this. Uh, so, yeah, this movie also preceded all of those franchises too and the whole like YA um, explosion or the post-apocalyptic YA explosion. And I almost mm-hmm. feel like those things are a response to the inflection point that they were talking about here. And this film wasn't really like it was well received critically, but it didn't really make much money. It was mostly ignored by the Oscars. Um, it was a really, flop. No, the yeah, theater. it was a complete flop. And yeah, the Oscars also didn't give it much love either. Um, and it's interesting, just I, I guess when something is too far ahead of the time, people can't even really tell how val- valuable it is, um, except for the true fans of something like this. Um, it was also, this movie makes me think of uh, Blade Runner, in a way, too. Yes. Just aesthetically, like how it builds the world, how lived in the entire world is. Uh, but I think what makes it even a more important film than Blade Runner is that, uh, you know, th- there's some great sci-fi themes in that movie. That is also one of my favorite movies ever made. Um but those themes are a little more, I don't know, a little more universal. Like, there are more themes of uh, identity and being and what really makes us human. And there's no there's no real urgency to that story. And I think that's partially why that mission, movie... There's a bit of a mission urgency in that story, which yeah. I think parallels nicely with mm-hmm. this one. Like, 
he's got the mission. He's got to take out these six yes, people. Yes, and they, um, the 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 uh, this the replicants have a timeline. Otherwise, you know, exactly. they're they're gonna. So they have a sense of urgency. But I've also, I, in a way, I've also always felt like Blade Runner was the replicant story. It just it it always right. seemed more on their side, even though they were doing bad things. But yeah, this movie gives us that same sort of world, but also gives us, I think, a lot more to chew on and to reflect. It reflects our own world in a much greater way, for sure. Yeah, oh, that, that comparison also brings up the, um, you know, the, the one of the things I was wondering about um, is, you know, Blade Runner was this movie that came out and, like, you know, didn't do that well initially. But then suddenly, you know, 20, 30 years later, yeah, you look around yeah. and realize that that's sort of the default. When, when a science fiction movie wants to have, like, depict the future, the Blade Runner feature is kind of like the default. And I'm curious if Children of Men will have or has <laughs> had that kind of influence because it seems like to me mm-hmm. – it's this movie that in some ways has, you know, like, suddenly everyone's talking about it. Everyone sort of acknowledges it as sort of this classic. And yet I don't necessarily see a lot of films that have followed in its footsteps. I think, a I lot think of maybe things... now. Go, go ahead. Hello. I was just saying, I think maybe at this point where people recognize it, where they're kind of slapped in the face with the mm-hmm. reality that uh, Corona pushed in, we might begin seeing films in the next three or so years that build on this sort of thing. But I think with Blade Runner 2, we didn't see a lot of things that kind of directly felt um, inspired by Blade Runner until after Blade Runner was considered uh, this cult classic and then uh, a large classic. I think that when you look at Children of Men, I'm not sure it was ever truly a cult classic. I don't remember like a fan following that I could like latch onto and get there. It was kind of an underground uh, following. Oh, and sure. now that where it's it's more underground than cult is normally. And now that we're in a place where um, you could see the themes from this movie on their face in our real lives, I do think people will be taking inspiration from this, especially because not only was the film, you know, the narration, the narrative of the film done in, 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 in a very interesting way that ties into today, I think it also pioneered some really powerful and difficult techniques that keep it very modern, even 10 years later, because people haven't been able to to do things like that amazing, and I use that word literally, uh, automobile scene where, where um, Julianne Moore's character, Julian, dies, or that incredible um, cinema verte kind of thing where they're running around avoiding tank fire, right? Like, as if they're in dresden during the bombing or something yeah, yeah. i mean um, we have seen movies do like that particular scene the army scene we've seen movies do that and i've seen even even movies like the freaking fright night remake try to recreate a very similar car chase except that did it mostly with cg um still a great scene still a great scene right. in the fright night the remake, realness and I of like this that is remake. What, the yeah. realness of it is what yes, i like so yes. much it's that not I cg it's less cg there is some cg right. in this movie but yeah that whole you, you just go look up like how the uh the car scene was done in in uh, children and men but basically they had this whole like rig up uh for the camera that was swinging around the car actors had to like dodge out of place and it was like uh, i believe sitting above the roof too like it was if you look at the rig that they built for the car it's just like sitting up there so it's a physical camera that's moving around which is even more insane given like how little space they had to work with and it's not like i don't think they were shooting digitally at that point like um everyone was still kind of shooting with film so yeah it's it's a major accomplishment uh uh, back to what we were saying i didn't even notice it though that's the craziest Mm -hmm. part about it like i didn't notice that that was a such a I, i knew that that shot I was surprised and appalled also because, you know, one of the top build people is dying so yep. early in the film Within and all these things happening. The movie, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that happens. And what gets me about that is later on reading about it, I read about, you know, if you notice, this scene is whatever. Um, this scene is incredible because it's 200 or whatever seconds of just movement. But what got me, and I know that there's some criticism about that scene mm-hmm. and how, you know, it's, oh, it's overdone. 
I feel like in film, a lot of the time, we're so used to the whiz-bang, or like, you know, the Star Wars prequels with the laser guns and the spaceships and the shooting, that when you see something as, as sort of like, again, to use the word mundane, as one person getting shot and everyone having to deal with that one person getting shot and having to focus on the tragedy of that one person getting shot mm-hmm. and not being able to take your eyes off of that scene, that's what kind of pulled me in dramatically to the film in a way that I might have been, I might have otherwise kind of been like, oh, okay, she died. <laughs> I mean, that's right? uh, the entire point of this movie, right? Is like, it's it's balancing, you know, the joy and tragedy of living and that whole scene like encapsulates the movie for me, right? Because they they're st- they start off they're playing the game, the ping pong ball game, and I don't think <laughs> has they, have they ever admitted if that was completely practical or not. Like I think uh, Quaron was being a little coy about it, but you know that scene, everyone's having fun. Like uh, yeah. Julian and Theo are, uh, are are kind of they're flirting in a way. Yeah, they're flirting. Yeah, right. They're everything seems good. And what I love about that scene is how the horror just kind of escalates slowly, like oh, everyone's happy, then you pan to the front and flaming car, and they're like, oh, shit. And then, you know, for some reason, Chiotella Jufor's character takes a while to start backing up. Um, but then he starts backing up, and, like, yeah, it escalates from there. That gunshot um, where uh, Julianne Moore's character, where she's actually shot, is uh, it happens so quickly. And there's a mm-hmm. little blood on the camera when that happens, too. That happens also in the uh, the whole war sequence at the end, which was a mistake. Can you imagine that? Apparently, yeah. 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 But a beautiful... Nobody can hear him scream. <laughs> right. Well, that thing... That, so that scene where she gets shot, mm-hmm. to me, it, it, like you said, it makes the movie for you. It, it makes the movie for me in another way. Uh, I agree with what you're saying. But also, you know, she gets shot. And obviously the blood is happening. And what happens is Theo, who's just reconnected with her, does his damnedest to save her life. Yeah. He he leans forward. You know, there, there's clearly these bad guys coming. You know, he does. He kicks the door, and the and the bad guys kind of get pushed over. But then, as the guy's driving backward, he's out of seatbelt. This car could anything could happen, and he's trying to do everything to stop the bleeding to save her life. This woman that he once loved, and we don't even really know the story about why he once loved her, but we believe it because of what's going on here. And when we later learn that she told Key to trust him, we believe in that trust because of the way he tried to save her life, mm-hmm. I think. He doesn't get many scenes with Julian Moore, right? He doesn't get much super interaction. But in that one car sequence, however long it took, he basically shows that you know she may not have been his girlfriend or wife then, but she was his one. For sure. And yeah. that's the kind of relationship that I think Mm-hmm. A lot of people have actually experienced, right? Like you may not be with this person now, but they were, they are your person. And he lost that person in that way and he was powerless to stop it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's as if once he realizes the true horror, which is that, you know, um, um, uh, was it, um, Luke, the guy driving, uh, the true horror is that as Luke is backing up, the reason why he took that moment to back up and the reason why all this happened yep. is because he planned it. Yep. Right. So, um, there's this horror that just kind of keeps on building out of that one moment and, it's 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 really something. What I love uh, about that scene too, uh, just the windshield, just like watch the windshield, which I think that oh had God. to be a digital effect, but like the slow cracking until yes. it all like explodes. Like yeah, this it's it's a po- it's poetic in a way of like how it all comes together. You're in this shit now, right? Yeah, for just, sure. Like, what happens sure. when it breaks, right? And what I love but about I think, uh, go ahead, Anthony. I was going to say that the other not to keep praising this one scene, but <laughs> one of the things I I love about it too is I realized that's the moment where I mean I'm I'm probably been like I mean it's not like been a boring film by any means uh-huh, before that, uh-huh. but that's when for the rest of the movie like you're just on edge the whole time, um and like it becomes a chasing tone, mm-hmm. yeah, and then well and also because I think you realize that like 
um, that, that he's not going to give you sort of the normal signals of like, this is this scene is like a fun scene. This is an action scene, but that one can shade very quickly into the other. And and I mean, I think from a plot perspective, that ends up being the case that a lot of times things are fine. And right, they, right. Quit, you know, they go wrong multiple times in that way. But like, that's the thing that sort of makes that possible. And just like, you are so like in it for the rest of it. Yeah. yeah, it really takes you. It really takes you. I mean, I, I, and I, I'm just going to just super agree with Anthony right there. Cause <laughs> from, that, from that moment, I'm like, anything can happen. Yeah. I must not take my eyes away from the screen. And that the way they shot it helps you not want to take your eyes away from the screen. Because you're blinking while that camera keeps on moving. The human eye doesn't work like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was discussed in the in this um, other article on um, – on io9 or or i'm sorry the AV uh, club, i think the av club exactly mm-hmm. about how your eye doesn't even work in this sort of super way but because there's so much information you're afraid to miss it and because you're afraid to miss it you you're on the edge of your seat and that's and, and because you're not going to get the normal cues like the music becoming suddenly dramatic or anything like that you're really there so it was it was yeah anthony you're spot on <laughs> uh it's definitely the shit got shit just got real moment <laughs> of this movie uh but what i also found interesting too is like up until that point every pretty much every single scene we've seen of theo is him just like getting drunk right in, in, at the beginning he is yes. uh, he's getting coffee he pours a little liquor on it explosion uh he goes to work uh he gets out of work and then he goes to visit jasper right and uh they just they they get high and they drink uh luke buys him several beers at the bar because after he agrees yep. to do it right uh everyone's like oh he's just doing it for the money this guy doesn't really care about what he's doing and that's mm-hmm. also what he's making sure and even in the car he has his liquor, you know, and he takes a nap, mm-hmm. and uh, Key calls him a drunk, right? And then and at that's that so point, interesting. yeah, sorry, after that point of the of the car chasing, it's like, yeah, things things get insane. He tries to have a smoke, and he just breaks down, and yeah, the the entire his entire modus operandi changes after that. So I was yeah, really glad they didn't have a scene where he was like just pouring the bottle out. Yes, they, so like, yes. they like they ramped it down, and they made it clear that he was an alcoholic, and he was like kind of like that's not you know central anymore but they don't have him be like oh. this is mark ronson with his incredible new album late night feelings featuring the hit singles late night feelings and nothing breaks like a heart mark ronson late night feelings out friday Oh, I'm like I'm past this now. Yeah, he is he is woke, guys. After yeah, after that it, whole it, scene, it's almost as if so. Before the alcohol was keeping him together, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. now once the the like you said, shit gets real. The alcohol isn't enough. It's not going to do it for him. It's not the way out, and he has to realize that. So he's right. still an alcoholic, um, but he realizes that he's got other priorities, so to speak, mm-hmm. like um, staying alive. And that 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 scene where Luke is getting him drunk and everything, I really like that because it kind of established the idea that Luke didn't take him seriously. Oh, nobody, yeah, like you said, for sure. nobody took him seriously, and that underestimation is precisely why it's believable that he could get away in the first place in the Mm -hmm. background we know that he was some sort of activist that he was in the shit for a while and then he got out to go straight kind of um so when he kicks that door and knocks that bicycle over you're like okay you could see him he'd have Mm -hmm. to fight he's in a bar fight or whatever you know what i mean like he he had some instincts right that's a thing it's not like coming out of nowhere and then later when he puts it together that luke was actually the one who killed julian and it's time to go uh, uh, that's one of those things where mm-hmm. you realize that Luke's underestimation of him 
is coming to his yeah. advantage, and then right? Theo, and that's... like as they're escaping, Theo like pulls a starter or something from the other car. Yes. Like he he does a thing that almost seems very natural to him uh, that I think most people wouldn't really think about in a movie like this. And you're like, in yeah. fact, I was when I was watching with my wife last night. She goes, "That was really smart. Yes. I would have never thought of that. Yes. I would have just kind of run away and hope they they didn't he know did I was gone." Something for long like enough. this before, like at some point, mm-hmm. like that's that's kind of what it's telling you. Uh, I also love how the movie paints how low at a point he is in his life uh, because mm-hmm. uh, after they kidnap him the first time and uh, yeah, there, there's some discussions like uh, you know, do, do I need the money or anything uh, when he's negotiating with Julian um, they throw him out and they throw some change on the ground and he, and picks, he it picks it up because he has to because he still he needs he it. still needs the money yeah he needs it yeah. and it's it's those little things that really build up this movie for me but, which also builds that motivate like so it, it describes and, and gives foundation to his motivation because really would you want to get back in bed with terrorists and all this other stuff yeah. like that yeah. when you're just going on and get along no he needed the cash which is why he uh, he picked that up it was. There's a lot of that foundation in his character, which is again goes back to Quran's whole thing where he's like not into the expository. So you're <laughs> learning it as it as it kind of moves forward without anyone ever having to spell it out for you. You just have to have to watch for those details, which actually makes sense as to why you watch the movie a couple times a year. Um, because there's it may not be that you're getting all sorts of new information out of it, but there's, there's several times when you saw it. And you got new information over and over and over again, and that feeling is 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 a good one. Well, yeah, one um, thing I mean, I've seen this movie so many goddamn times at this point. But what it, one thing I noticed in that car scene, he's he's literally sitting in Julian's seat, you know, as they're heading back. Like just those those yeah. little things that oh that that yeah. actually means something, you know. It's not just oh he just he was uncomfortable in the backseat. I think it kind of means a lot. Uh, but let's talk about the movie like post the car chase, post woke Theo. <laughs> um, I love the buildup of the fishes and kind of their resistance to everything and the arguments they're all having. Um, in particular, like that, the argument of, okay, so he finds out that he is pregnant in a beautifully realized scene, too. Like in a they're bar. in a manger. Yeah, in, in, a, a, in manger. a manger. In a manger, for <laughs> sure. Or in a barn. But also, yeah, you could see it as like a Christian-related thing. But also cows, like in every culture, like Hindu culture, but many, many others. Like they are, they represent life. They represent uh, fertility. fertility. For sure. So it's it's not very subtle about the imagery, but I think somebody who isn't thinking about you know how this movie is working on multiple levels could miss that. But just a beautiful reveal of that whole thing. Uh, but yeah, then they are having this argument about what to do with the baby. Uh, what did you guys think of that scene? Because it always struck me as interesting that his first response is to go public, and the you know the resistance just seems like that could never work. This is a certain level of um. Uh, there's a certain privilege to this, right? Yeah. Um, when I have one of my, my best men at my wedding, we we um, talked about the goings on of you know uh, police and and people getting shot and armed and all that stuff, stuff like that. And from his perspective, like you got to trust the cops, right, right, right? And from my perspective, I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> and one of the things that was interesting about that is that I'm later reading in the New York Times about how there are these communities of of color or not even of color but of 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 um low socioeconomic status and their experience with the cops and public life is very different from that of people who are sort of more in the middle class even if they're in lower middle class that mm-hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. and so because of that there is a bit of a cultural divide with hey if you go public if it's all out there if it's all open then no one can hurt you as opposed to if you go public then they will take your stuff from you. 
Right? Yeah, sure. There's a kind of a um, mentality. I, I have this myself, and I get it from my mother. It's kind of like I'm not telling anyone that I'm about to put an offer on a house. When I get the house, I'll tell people. Because if I tell people before, <laughs> something might happen. Um, so this idea that he's like he's he's in the system. His his cousin is this big deal with the Michelangelo, and he's got a job. It's an and- arc, by the way. I love that they called it an arc. I didn't notice that the first time, but it's an arc of like art, fine art. Right, exactly. Um, it's it's a, like a vault, and they're mm-hmm. saving it. Mm-hmm. So he's got this. He's got these connections to this big world. And he's like, if we go public, everything should be fine. They won't be able to get you. But on the other hand, the other guys are like, no. If we go public, they'll take the baby from her. And for Key, that's obviously a non-starter. Yes. Um, um, let's also just mention her name is Key. I mean, it's not spelled like a key, but mm-hmm. she's really the key, right? Um, so <laughs> I thought that was a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> like the boat called the Tomorrow. I mean, yeah, the Tomorrow. There are certain the key bits to tomorrow. in this movie where he goes too too far, but I, I love it anyway. That's fine, right? <laughs> but but yes, yeah, so this was, was cool. That, like, how he was able to say that. Mm-hmm. That argument reminded me of was, which I, I think is maybe a little bit less intentional, less about what that argument was about. Was like that. I think it is a sort of a traditional like Hollywood narrative of like once you reveal if like for any sort of conspiracy story once you reveal the truth that like um that'll like you know that that solves the problem right and, and you know right. like one of the the first movie I saw she would tell edge for in, in serenity like mm-hmm. that's sort right. of the crux of the film um and i think that certainly anyone who works in journalism this year um if you believe <laughs> that that's how things worked um that belief got a lot of uh you know abuse this year right there's a certain faith in the system that i think theo even though he's so like downtrodden given his the fact that he was able to live a middle class life and he's not actively fighting back i guess he has a certain faith in those systems but i i don't know i have to think that there may there's be also s- a double there's mm-hmm. also a double um an, uh, an ulterior motive there. So, yes, yes, you know, yes, where, yes. where Luke is looking at it, he's like, right. no, we can't tell the system. We can't bring it out to the system because he wants to use this yeah. child as his symbol of, of resistance and war and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, if you come to us, you know, we've got the, the, the future in our hands. And if you come to our side, we can make things better. I can get well, more power. We'll, we'll swing back to that because that's a, definitely an important point of this whole film. Um, but the thing about Theo that's interesting is uh, just him bringing up the idea of bringing the baby to the authorities. I do think uh, there's a way to do that, right? To make it public, um, to at least announce something without immediately making yourselves like open to the state. I I think there's a way to do it to like start changing public minds. Uh, What's just funny is that, you know, if, if he didn't have to like immediately run, I think they actually could have like thought out some way to do that. Uh, maybe hack some airwaves or something like figure out a way to get that message out there that could change the public's minds and maybe not leave them in such a vulnerable spot but yes you're right it turns out that luke is double crossing and they want to use the baby for their own messaging and we're never quite sure what uh but i guess what's important about that whole thing is that he went to any means to do that right his his um impulse and his uh his his whole focus is on really supporting the fishes and the 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 resistance and making the baby a symbol of that and it seems less about protecting the baby even it's more mm-hmm. like using the baby as a tool and that's immediately what Theo is trying to stop he doesn't care what's best for humanity he right, cares what's right. best for the fishes he, his faction yes although i mean i think that it, part of it is his argument would be that what's best for the fishes is what's best for humanity because it's sure. it's that logic of my my side is the correct side and so mm-hmm. anything you know that 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 it's it's sort of a means to the to the end which is you know the the fishes sort of coming out ahead mm-hmm. it's sure. a, it's a really sure. smart commentary on like uh, just liberal resistance in a way too like 
that may not always be the best response, especially if you're trying to, I don't know, uh, uh, change hearts and minds and not just trying to prolong a war or something like that. But yeah, so uh, that scene happens. Leo dis- uh, Theo decides to escape. In another great scene, by the way, because um, the whole escape sequence, very little goes right. It's such a exactly. wonderfully uh, pretty sequence and mostly a long take, too. Uh, of them like trying to sneak out and push the car and just start. He doesn't have any car. shoes on. He doesn't have any shoes on. Uh, there's a lot of imagery around his feet too. Um, yep. I've seen people theorize like that's that's almost like a saintly thing for him. Yeah, it's a it's like a John the Baptist kind yeah. of situation going on right there. Yeah, yeah. They absolutely. make a big deal of him like being barefoot and then finding shoes several times in the film. So, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, given uh, Quran is a, a filmmaker coming from like a very very prominent catholic country catholic country yeah, it, yeah. Uh, i could see that being a thing yeah uh, mexicans have never been subtle about that kind of imagery <laughs> um but yeah that whole sequence what i love about it too is that it's a uh, it's a modern problem it's modern like starting the car they're in the future and they're still having a trouble like turning the car's uh, ignition which is kind of funny right the engine just won't turn over he's got to do the pushing he's got to do all this stuff and you know what's really funny is that to give you an idea of like the broke downness of this <laughs> world and society, like today, if you own a car, like there are people I know who have 1996 Honda Civics still running oh, yeah. at 200 miles, 200,000 miles, because the cars today are so incredibly reliable, right? So things have to get really broken before that happens. We could also be a commentary on English engineering. We all know Land Rovers and Jaguars have never had the best record, <laughs> but at the same time, um, the fact that nothing goes right brings more attention to that scene and again you're on your seat and you're on your seat about things that are kind of like they're so mundane but they're so important right then it reminds (laughs) me of the von trapp family trying to get the car out without making any noise right then they're lucky that they're on this downhill situation he turns the corner all the speed is lost anyone who's ever snowboarded or skis knows what that's about (laughs) um and he's just got to push this thing and he's got you know what he's got nothing on his feet and you know it's it's just like there's just no way it's an impossible situation didn't actually attack him would i would i find all the animals like him yeah the animals love him that's another like potentially religious thing or tying him to nature or something uh mm-hmm. I, in this film the animals in some way represent the innocence of children too like people yes. there are animals everywhere because we don't have kids anymore and pets as uh, you and i know Dwayne, do take the place of uh tiny humans uh, you know a little bit uh, we take care of them we love them like children uh there's one yeah. ad at the beginning of the film for like a dog fur coat and i i think quran was saying like oh that would be kind of a joke right like this is a, the ultimate end of capitalism right is to uh basically start marketing to our pets and uh, yeah that's that's way too real and way too true right now i just bought a it's also a nod you, to the mm-hmm. to the book because in the book um a lot of elements in the movie are not in the book but one of the big elements in the book is that people have strollers for their animals they dress them <laughs> up in fine clothing a lot of the, the you can imagine the visualizations you have from the hunger games in the capital on pets so it's like a little subtle nod to that thing because um because uh, that, that's that's kind of how the world is. Because capitalism still exists. And yes, that is the end of capitalism. When you're sort of like, hey, I'll make money off the dog situation. You know, it's uh, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy, and there's definitely a market for it in this film. Um, I guess one thing about the technology too is it, it's also there's so much old technology as well. Like the one of the things that brought Blade Runner to mind is that you see a lot of almost like rickshaws, right? Or you see those bicycles that are carrying people around early on in the film, or even maybe they're like motorized in a really simple way too. But technology isn't like 
20 years ahead of when the film was released. Technology is like a little bit better to, than today, but still pretty shitty. You know, like very, yeah, like the very cars, mm-hmm. much no stuff with a little like heads up display and stuff like that. But it's not like we're leaps forward. Right. It's not like we're in a place where you can like teleport to where you want to go. It's just yeah. they, people have basically hacked their way to making things work because resources are scant. In a nice well, way. I think the thing that it does that both the Blade Runner, I think, was maybe the first one of the first films mm-hmm. to do is that this idea that when the future happens, it doesn't replace everything else. Right. It's right. that there's like all these different levels of technology coexisting at the same time. Um, and I think that, that that that's part of what makes this world feel really lived in is that they have the futuristic stuff and then they have the stuff that they, you know, the shitty stuff they haven't bothered to get rid of. <laughs> and I guess that also shows like the just the stalling of innovation in society, too. Right. Because if uh, all these things are happening, you know, climate change, major uh, uprisings, warfare, nuclear warfare all over the place. Uh, one of the scariest headlines in that newspaper uh, sequence, by the way, is uh, Russia launching nukes. You know, like Russia starting everything <laughs> by launching nukes. It's like after today and uh, the Obama administration, you know, issuing sanctions against Russia. Like all of this is beginning to seem a little, a little too close to home. And this movie is getting yeah, both scarier, Putin and scarier. Trump have uh, called for um, kind of not restarting, but building <laughs> yeah. on top of the existing nuclear weapon supply that both countries have. So um, both That's the U.S. Great, and guys and the, and the U.S. I'm just excited I mean, that living in the U.S., the bombs will fall on us first and we won't have to deal, <laughs> deal with the fallout. And death will be swift. Death will be swift unless it's nuclear fallout. I don't. I don't know. Like maybe maybe we'll be on an, on the outskirts. I don't know, guys. This no, is no, getting... no. If, if I see the, I'm gonna like run to the river and I'm gonna like just swim to Manhattan to get hit. You know, I <laughs> I don't want to survive that. I see. We know we're <laughs> wow, that is nihilistic lies, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so dark, guys. Um, but yeah, there's so much else. Uh, we're nearing our hour long point, but there's so much else to discuss about this movie. Um, any any particular points you guys want to bring up? Uh, I know one thing I keep seeing, uh, whenever you say you love something on the internet, there will inevitably be somebody who comes up and is like, the thing you love is terrible for this and this yes. and this reason. And the <laughs> one thing I keep seeing about this movie uh, is the idea that, uh, you know, it, and it's a legitimate one too, it's like, th- this is essentially a white savior film. You know, Theo mm. is like lone white dude who comes out of nowhere and I think it was... Uh, I forget who tweeted this, but somebody was like, uh, it was a, oh, look at this, uh, you know, uh, multicultural resistance. Uh, it fails, and this one white guy comes in and manages to, like, do the thing that they've been trying to do forever. I think that's a little unfair and, I don't know, disingenuous about how the film for is actually this, portraying things, but you brought up some good points. Yeah. yeah, I would say that for this particular film, the white savior complex isn't exactly accurate. Like, like that person said, there is a multicultural resistance. But I also feel as if, first of all, when you look at the movie, right, mm-hmm. versus the book, in the original storyline, Julian was the pregnant one. And uh, in that case, you'd have, you know, you'd have this white woman being saved by a white man and yada, yada, yada. And maybe we wouldn't have that, this, this talk at all. But the decision to make Key uh, a person of African descent, um, she's a, a Ghanaian Britain, a Ghanaian descent of Britain, um, in order to, in the, the, the choice to make that happen, um, I think was one that actually energized the cast somewhat. You've got this, you know, 19-year-old and she's got this pregnant thing going on. And what's interesting is that because of what we talked about earlier, this idea that it's not a question of one color winning over another color, right? It's the refugee situation. There's like an old German woman in there next to some people of, you know, Arabic descent, all this stuff. It's it's really not a question of what people look like. In fact, there's 
plenty of shots, at, at least one that, that I can recall, of a whole bunch of dark-skinned um, black men in like suits and everything walking around, right? As um he's about to get abducted and go meet the the fishers. So he's saving this person, but uh, there's a certain level of post-racialness that's happening in this entire scenario. No one bats an eye that Luke is now the leader, or that Julian, a woman, was the leader before. So it's not like we live in a world where you can only be doing the righteous thing if you're a white person, because the Fishers are clearly righteous, even though they're on the wrong side of the antagonist-protagonist divide for us. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, you've got your, your, your most ardent, villainous Fisher is your dreadlocked white guy, um, he just wants to kill everybody, and so I guess Charlie kind of feel Hunnam, like, by the way, Anthony, his right. mind was blown learning that was Charlie on him, and I love yeah, that actor. <laughs> just insane, but he'll be back yeah. in what, the next Pacific Rim. So that's weird seeing that guy who is a hero in a lot of things, uh, and mm-hmm. an anti-hero in like uh, Sons of Anarchy, as like the yeah the real bad resistance fighter. Right. Although yeah, I, so think I, think it, I just feel like at the end. Right. That, um, oh yeah, the last thing I wanted to say was just that. Mm-hmm. So I feel like what we have in the story is something is a is a is a complex mix of different types of people in a world that's not divided specifically by race, but by class and by status, legal status. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that he's he takes on the at first you think it's the father figure, but by the time we see them in the boat together, it's kind of Jesus marrying Joseph, right? Yeah, he's the yeah. guy in charge of the family, even though he's not responsible for having created the baby. Um, it's it's less of a white savior and more of a I'm going to take my privilege and use it responsibly, mm-hmm. um, and and that that happens. Um, so I I don't think that that's what defines this movie. If you're if you're looking at the film and you're you're saying I got to throw it out because of that, you know this is no gangster's paradise. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think, I, think that's, I, I completely agree that like in the text of the film that mostly I don't think it's that's really what the film is about, and certainly I, I wouldn't dismiss the film for that reasons. I do think that. There is this sort of, you know, just the pure visual of like when, I mean, you know, key, you know, key aside who's sort of, I think, a special case because she's the one being saved. Basically, yes. yeah. all the good fishes. I mean, that is, you know, Julianne Moore, Clive Owen, and then the I don't remember the actress or character name of the, of the midwife, right? Are basically the good ones. And Miriam, then, yeah, yeah, Miriam, and then um, Luke, and then his, you know, the person who seems to be his right hand right hand man is also, you know, a brown man. Mm-hmm. There's something kind of unfortunate about seeing things kind of break down that way. Um, so I think that even if I don't think that was intentional, but I think there is sort of like some unfortunate optics there. Um, yeah, yeah. I do think, yeah. I mean, it's also, I think the politics of that are also interesting from the sense of like this idea that I think that you were talking about earlier, Devendra, about, you know, this idea of even the resistance is corrupt, which I think is totally, I think, an, an, a good note of ambiguity to strike. But then in some ways, the film kind of, like begs out of that because then it says, okay, well then there's this other salvation in, you know, the human project. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I mean, if we really want to draw direct parallels, like with the political situation now, like, is it better to say, well, like both of these sides are kind of screwed up in their own, are both screwed up. And so I wash my hands of them. Um, Or is it better to say, well, they're both screwed up, but one of them is like right in a lot of ways. And so I'm still going to cast my lot with them, even if I think they do a lot of unsavory things. So I, I think you just think, described every Trump voter in a way, too. So I don't know. Right. Or every yeah. Bernie or Bernie Robust people yeah, yeah, would yeah. fall under the same uh, umbrella. Yeah. But like, you know, mm-hmm. I think like and then that's so I think that's like an interesting like I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit where I mean, and then and then having that also then the like the militant, you know, let's say leftist group, maybe a little yeah. simplistic, but so the militant leftist group and then to have which is, you know, again, led by, you know, a, a black man, 
and then have the white guy be like, I don't know, the reasonable thing is neither of these. I mean, it makes me a little bit uneasy. I don't, <laughs> it doesn't make me, you know, toss out the film, but I think that the, mm-hmm. it, it gives you a little bit more to chew on there. Yeah, yeah, Let's also a... remember that Sid is a bad guy and he's as white as the new driven snow, right? <laughs> um, yeah, he, I... he, he kind of comes up as, as normal. Then we've got the lady, mm-hmm. um, this um, I mean, she may be white, but she's also got this immigrant thing. She doesn't even speak English. Well, Michaela, she's, she's a gypsy, right? so in a, yeah, she's a Roma, and yeah. she's, she's so she's from a and they've an always been the and marginalized, in Europe, like yeah, exactly. Generally, thing. she's a traditionally marginalized person, and they're known for being petty and taking what they can. Um, this is the stereotype: they're petty, they take what mm-hmm. they can when they can. So the idea of this woman having this baby, she could have exploited it, and you get a hint of that when she gets out of that that closed door yeah, yeah, with yeah. the baby. And then you're like, oh, my God, she shook the baby. And then she comes back and helps Key get through the door. And you're like, oh, my God. And then she does all this incredible stuff. They can't get out of that place without her. And right? they can't they even that. speak the same language. But they, it's, it's the language of survival, right? And, oh, exactly. you have the one thing that will save civilization. I should probably do what I can to help you right now. She does the right thing. And she yeah. does it. And despite the fact I – mean, and so I guess what I'm saying is, yes, you kind of have these, like, English-speaking, you know, Caucasian people that are, that are great. But then you have Caucasian people that are, that are pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. I think uh, you know you've got Sid as a bad guy. You've got your dreadlock friend, and questionably you've got the um, the cousin who's got the, all the art locked up in his vault. Oh yeah. And then you've got and then you've got these people who are marginalized that are also helping, like uh, you know the, the gypsy lady, and um, and and obviously Key is a, is a good person, although she's being saved. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that you the the world is just a bit more complex here so i yeah, i do see yeah. what anthony's saying when it comes to the the visuals but the best part about this movie is that it forces you to pay attention and once you do you recognize that it's 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 deeper mm-hmm. than than that kind of thing i have to say i i think symbolically um I'm I'm always for trying to get as many people of color in leads in films uh, if anybody you know slash filmcast listeners will understand this I am always bringing this up because it's it's a constant topic of conversation. I honestly, I, I would have rather seen uh, Chiotel Ejiofor be, the, you know, the lead in The Martian instead of Matt Damon. Because how many times do we have to save Matt Damon, for God's sake? <laughs> um, but well, you know what's funny about him? He did play a Hindu in that movie, which is not yes. the kind of thing that you typically and play. That, that was, I actually that found that really interesting, too, because I have cousins who look like him. Like, I have cousins who, you know, are half Indian you look and like, half black. Yeah, you look like me, yeah. Yeah, and look like Dwayne. Dwayne is also uh, from Guyana, my home country, and uh, you're an interesting mixture of ethnicities, too. So always good to have yeah. your perspective, Dwayne. <laughs> uh one well what i was trying to say about theo though it's uh the imagery of like this yeah this this white british dude who is almost seems like an everyman in a way too right he rises up he recognizes that he has to do something and helps this you know this fuji who has no rights know anything but recognizes that they need help and that helping them will be an important thing for the rest of humanity too. So I think that imagery, that's kind of how Coron's movies seem to work too. Like he's a very symbolic guy, sometimes to the detriment of the film. I think, uh, uh, as much as I love gravity, gravity. yeah, gravity, (laughs) like there's, there's a lot of like birth imagery. There's a lot of like stuff there that maybe is a little too overt, but I love that movie too. I just think, uh, you know, and the fact that it's Coron making this film, a Mexican filmmaker, um, I, I think gives it another level of uh, it, it's at least Depth. not as like yeah it's it's more 
racially deep, I think, than just dismissing it as white savior thing. So I just wanted to put that out. There's there. also the fact yeah. that normally white saviors do so at like very little cost. Like yes. Michelle yes. Pfeiffer walks away and she can go back to her life. You know, at any given time they can just drop everything and walk away. Um, but he, you know, Theo gives up his status. He becomes a refugee. There's no way he could get for him to easily get back from that. Mm-hmm. And then after it's all said and done. You know, um, whether he's just passed out or he completely loses his life, we don't know. But um, there is cost to he's what dead. he's he's done. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I like to believe be he's dead. I like to believe he's dead, but I also know Hollywood likes to come back. So Hollywood loves to come back. Well, honestly, uh, there is there's a lot of rich material, and it would be interesting to see them bring back this story in a certain way. Maybe in the way that like City of God was brought back. Uh, well, City of God was originally a TV series, and then it was turned into a movie, and then that the, there was like a sequel series as well. I could see a sequel about like humanity trying to restore itself, definitely without Clive Owen. Um, but I, I would love to know what's going on at the uh, the Human Project. Like, I, I'm sure Key is not yeah. the only woman who is having a child, and it, it'll probably be a multicultural bunch of women who they're you know uh, kind of helping to protect, who are finally getting pregnant and figuring out what's happening. I don't know if that's even important. The film definitely stands on its own. Um, but I guess more importantly, like, what are your takeaways from the film watching it uh, in at the end of 2016? Um, definitely one of the hardest years um, for many, many reasons. As I was watching this, the news that Debbie Reynolds passed away uh, came across my screen. So that was yeah. great. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a tough year. What do you take away from this film now? Um, I'll say like one of my big takeaways, which is maybe not a uh, hopeful note to end this on, but uh, was that, you know, one of the things I wrestled with a lot was, you know, that this idea that there's all this like shitty stuff happening in the film. And then on top of that, people are infertile and that, and there's even that line, which is we were done even before that happened. Um, And I think like for a while I wasn't really sure. I was like, oh, is that sort of like almost like gilding the lily? Is it too much? Like what if they just made a film about all the shitty things that are happening to us now and they didn't have (laughs) to add this sort of high concept? Um, And I think watching it now in 2016, I realized that to me it's actually perfect because um, one of the things I really like was struggling to try to articulate after the election was just this feeling of like, that the future was going in one direction and suddenly that future has sort of gone away. And I mean, I think in some ways that's sort of, over, I mean, I think it's it's hard to overstate how bad things could potentially get, but I, right. I think, um, but I think I was also responding to it on this very, very emotional level, and I think that Children Men really speaks to that. That that's like that idea of like what is, what like how do you live your life when you feel like there is no future? And um, I mean, in that sense, like the concept is really great, and I mean, obviously the execution really follows through and and makes you feel that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for me, um, I, I would agree with much of what Anthony said, especially about how do you live your life when there is no future. A lot of what we do as humans is focused on what we'll leave behind because there's a moment you know sometime in your 30s perhaps when you realize that you might be on the downside of time now right too um, real too real <laughs> no, wait, no. right and, well it's just interesting because you know Clive Owen at the, in this stage he must be in his 40s right um, yeah. and during, during the filming of this and as you watch it it's like he doesn't care about anything he doesn't really know why he's there he needs some money so he can live his lifestyle and once he realizes that she's pregnant and once she lets him know that Julian is the one that um, told her to trust him above everybody else. He realizes he has a thing to do. He's got something to do that can save the world. Mm-hmm. And not everybody is presented with that um, opportunity. And he, he, he actually rises to that occasion, which is what we want all of our heroes to do. And so for me watching it, I mean, I'll tell you this. After 10 years, 
Um, I've seen the movie a few times. I own the Blockbuster um, video <laughs> DVD sale version, nine ninety nine, with the Blockbuster um, <laughs> container. Um, and I, I've seen the movie multiple times, but I think every time I watch it, I find myself getting emotional. I find myself tearing up, which is probably one of the reasons why it's in my top five, because not many films do that for me. Um, and that idea of like, what do you do? Like, what's the point if humanity is is on its way out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what's what are you leaving behind? Um, it's a question that I can't answer. Luckily, we're not in that position now. But at, at this age, at this age, I'm also thinking about um, my own fertility, like you know, starting right, a right. family, things like that. And so that it, it becomes like, what am I doing for those who are going to come after me? So, um, like politics aside, I think there's there's a very human um, element to this, especially as you watch it over time. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's that's. I, I got to give you know more kudos to Quran for being able to to pull that off in a static, uh, relatively static format, right? Th- yeah. This movie. It's really hard to convey true hopelessness, I guess, without seeming like you're going overboard. And I remember when this movie came out, and even to this day, like a lot of people are like, uh, they can't even buy into the premise, right? That this, oh, this is a world where people can't have kids anymore. <laughs> And look at this magical well, welcome baby. welcome to science fiction. Yeah, yeah. And look at this baby at the end, this magical baby that makes everybody stop, which, by the way, is the most cynical way to view that wonderful, beautiful scene of them walking through the building with the baby. Yeah, maybe it's a little too hopeful, yeah. but that's a, that's the way I like my hopeless cinema or my hopeless science fiction. <laughs> like that, that tinge of hope, that moment of, like, maybe it'll be okay, and then it immediately goes to shit again. Um, but yeah, it's that sort of thing. Um, it's everything you guys have been saying. I think this film says a lot about trying to survive in a hopeless world. Uh, but the world is even more hopeless, not to get too real. Also, it is a lot more hopeless today than it was a decade ago. Um, yeah, there across the world, there have been huge conservative movements, uh, huge isolationist movements. Uh, we have the refugee crisis happening all across the world. Uh, but especially centered in Europe and around the Middle East, uh, we know that there are going to be huge environmental issues. Uh, at uh, uh, Christmas this year, uh, it was like nearly 60 degrees in New York. And like things, it's hard to attribute even single days to overall climate change, but things are getting weird. You know, so we're seeing that. <laughs> we're seeing the major storms like Sandy as well, and how that wipe pretty much, you know, flooded New York. And the major impact that had, like, we still have to close lines and fix tunnels from the damage from that whole thing. It is all a little much. It's a little hard to take. It's a little bleak, but there's there's still some hope left. Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. just to put just a a tiny bit of hope, um, when when the Colombian legislature passed their their post-referendum laws that made peace with the FARC for the first time since Columbus landed in America, we've had peace in the Western Hemisphere. That's like a huge chunk of the world with no war. Although didn't that, so, didn't that uh, there, there's there are huge issues around that still. So so there was a there was a um there were, like the long and short of it is yeah they put up the 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 piece for a referendum the referendum failed they put up the piece again for the parliament to decide upon they changed it to to match what the people had complained about the parliament passed it and the piece is now standing it's okay. a real legal thing and because of that there's no you know state on state or or, or civil war violence happening in the western hemisphere yeah but just as we move on from civil war which is definitely that's that's an important thing to to consider Mm -hmm. uh yeah you have the unseen almost like a resurgence of the cold war except it's not really cold it's just invisible and it's in the cyber and it's terrifying you're right yeah because it's uh 
yeah, it's influencing everything. I guess uh, I also read Trump's statement about uh, the computer, the computer <laughs> oh, world, and it just it just made me really sad for where we're headed. But the point of this film and what I still love about it and why I'll keep watching it is that idea of hope. It's not just one person making a difference, but it's the idea of you know stepping up when you when you see an opportunity it's not just like sitting back and like being complacent about the world turning to shit like we'll all have our own opportunities to kind of do something about what's Mm -hmm. happening either maybe speaking up in your job or your field um it's honestly something i'm thinking about now as i write for a site that's read by you know millions of people um you have a platform yeah it, it kind of changes my coverage a little um and yeah Dwayne, i'm also in your camp of like you know i i have to start thinking about having kids and there's a lot of um there's a lot of talk i'm hearing from people who are worried about raising kids in the trump world and i think this movie in a way made me feel I, I've had those fears too, and this movie made me feel less fearful because you you need to have those kids. Those kids represent hope, and the only way, like, yeah, we will paint a better future is by you know also having those kids and teaching them, you know, a worldview that is maybe different than what's being portrayed in the wider government or something. Uh, but also, if uh, if you feel afraid and you stop doing that thing. Uh, it could end up being like an idiocracy situation where everybody else started procreating, and we're we're going to be outnumbered with different sorts of uh, I don't know mindsets. Not to I guess it's a little dark, but I'm trying to bring hopeful guys. <laughs> so you're yeah. just saying ha- ha- procreate and have fun doing it. <laughs> procreate, have fun doing it. Uh, procreate with a purpose, everyone. But also <laughs> that's uh, that's your new pickup line, everybody. Um, look, look them right in the eyes and say this is this is for the world. This is for. <laughs> Come with me if you want to save the future. And you can read that line in multiple ways. Um, yeah. Uh, but also the whole thing about raising kids, too. I think it's... Uh, what I love about this movie, um, the idea of a world without children is essentially saying it's a world without hope, right? Because if you have no children, you have no future. It's it's basic math. Uh, that's why I love that scene of them going to the uh, the elementary school. And it's just a ghost. It's abandoned. It's a ghost town. Because why would you even need to maintain something like that when there aren't any kids around? And and you yeah. see Key sitting on the swing, mm-hmm. and she's swinging, and you realize that she's barely more than a child herself. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. So, yeah. Um, but yes, and then you have this one child come up, and this kid, this one kid represents all the hope. And it's a reminder that, yeah, there's still something worth fighting for. So mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's that'll always be my takeaway from this movie. A baby was powerful. I mean, there's a, that scene you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like, you've got this baby's cries, and it's the most vulnerable being on the face of the earth. And it's effectively able to stop an army for a good half a minute. Yeah. Just like crying, right? They, they can't even be beside themselves. And if that doesn't give you hope, nothing will. Agreed. Any other thoughts about the film, guys? Because, uh, yeah, we've been going on for a while. I love this movie so much. I could talk about it endlessly, and I... Uh, I don't know. I hope uh, we'll have more takes on it as well. Like uh, the the last version, it's a really early Blu-ray, um, so it was released like close to the advent of the Blu-ray format. You even get the notice uh, when you boot it up saying, "Hey, uh, this is a new format. There may be some bugs. Be sure to update your Blu-ray player when you put in this disc." I found that kind of hilarious. I'd love to see a yeah a a four K version at some point, maybe HDR as well. Uh, I saw this movie on my projector, and I also feel like seeing it on a big-ass screen 
is the only way to see this movie because that really lets you envelop yourself in the background and in everything going on like sit sit back and pause that scene where theo is in the uh the newspaper covered walls and it's it's pretty incredible to watch so yeah anything else guys I would just say that if anyone hasn't revisited it for a while, um, it's also worth noting that it's currently on HBO Go slash now. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, it was it was fantastic to be able to talk to people about this. I mean, it's a great film. Excellent. Okay, so where can we find you guys on the internet? And thank you for joining, by the way. Anthony, go ahead. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This has been super fun. Um, I am at Anthony Ha on Twitter. I write for TechCrunch.com. And you can also buy a chapbook of my short stories called Love Songs for Monsters at Amazon. And Dwayne? Uh, you can check me out on Twitter. I'm twitter.com slash Dwayne D. That's D-W-A-Y-N-E-D. I, um, I write for Geeks of Doom in my spare time. You can also check me out on my own blog. It's DwayneD.com. All right. And uh, I'm at Devendra on Twitter. I write about TechAngadget.com. We're doing the podcast there. Uh, as always, thank you for listening to us. Uh, leave a review for the Slash Filmcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, subscribe, and uh, keep an eye out for our top 10 films of 2016 coming soon. Thanks for joining us, folks. If you thought things had changed, friends, you better think again. Put the pot in the fewest of words. Counts are still running the world Counts are still running the world